Well, good morning, everybody. Happy Mother's Day to all the moms in this room and all the moms joining us online. We're so grateful, moms, for all that you do to serve and bless and encourage others. And thanks, Hannah, for your words of blessing and prayer over our moms today. And I hope and just pray that today you feel blessed and encouraged from spending some of your time with us today. I'm one of those folks on the planet that's super grateful for the mother that the Lord has given me. And so, Mom, I love you. I'm so grateful for the influence you have been and continue to be in my life. And I suspect I'm not alone in that camp, and you might be seated around your mom today. I know one of the reasons that some folks maybe come to a Mother's Day service is they wake up on Mother's Day morning and say, Mom, what do you want to do today? What do you want to make it special for you today? And she'd say often, I want my whole family to be together in church. And if that's why you're here today, we're grateful And I hope your uh, time with your mom today is a real blessing together as a family. And so we're in this series on the life of the Apostle Paul. We started it last Sunday, and we talked last Sunday about what it it meant for Saul to go from Saul 1.0 to Saul 2.0. And it was a pretty significant moment because because Saul 1.0 had quite a resume of kind of the old ways, old self, old life. He had quite a refuge and not unlike what perhaps some of our journeys are, that many of us and the testimonies we have, uh, the explanation for our life is really a 1.0 to 2.0 journey. So if you haven't already done so, open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 9, and if you've got your note sheet on the way in the door, pull that out. We're going to continue our journey and pick up what happened from the transition from 1.0 to 2.0, because uh, remember, Saul's on his way to Damascus. And at the top of your note sheet, you kind of see a timeline here. It'll be on the screen, just a high-level overview of the gentleman in the New Testament that's known as the Apostle Paul, who ends up writing 13 of the 27 New Testament books. He begins, known as the name is Saul of Tarsus. He's Saul 1.0. And so Saul's journey, as it begins there on the timeline, right, he has this what's called a conversion in the language of the Bible. It's a, it's a born again in the language of John 3. It's a, it's a spiritual turning point. And so for him, his conversion is the Damascus Road in Acts 9. That was a spiritual awakening moment. And then from, nine, uh, from Acts 9, you'll kind of see there on the timeline, the journey will be working through in the months ahead. And his life helps frame a good chunk of what the New Testament is all about. So if you want to understand the New Testament of the Bible well, you need to understand the Apostle Paul's life well, because his life and his letters are such a central part of where it's at. So Saul 2.0 does arrive in Damascus. He was on his way, Saul 1.0 was on his way to Damascus to shut down the Christian church. He was going to arrest the Christians, toss them all in prison, because he went from proclaiming Jesus is the blasphemer, and then Saul 2.0 is on the scene. Jesus stepped in the way to show him the way, struck him blind in order to see. And in his blindness, he began to see that Jesus isn't a blasphemer, but Jesus is the Messiah and the Christ. So his agenda, no surprise, is changing. He's going to get to Damascus, He's just going to be about something a little different than he had planned. Anybody been there? You kind of set out your plans, and then God steps in the way to show you, in the, way, show you the way, and the agenda shifts. That's where we're picking up the story today. Acts 9, verse 21. 
Saul arrives in Damascus and he heads to the synagogue because the synagogue is the place. Think of that as kind of a, a local church in that day in the Jewish context. The synagogue is where the Jewish religious conversations took place. So Saul wants to have spiritual dialogue because he's at a major spiritual encounter. And so in verse 21, all those who heard him, who heard Saul, were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among, whose, among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving, underline this in your Bibles, that Jesus is the Christ. Now, those couple of sentences beg the question, what happened to that guy? What happened to that guy is Jesus happened to that guy. Anybody have that testimony? Some have, some of, right, we live enough life and you have enough history and you experience some change and people might say, well, what happened to you? And the explanation for Saul is Jesus happened to me. He went from saying Jesus is a blasphemer to Jesus is the Christ. He was struck blind in order that he could see where Jesus stood in the way to show him the way. And now he's standing in the synagogue in Damascus. And instead of lobbying the Jews to go shut down the church of Jesus, he's lobbying them to build the church of Jesus saying, hey, this Jesus who I formerly thought was a blasphemer is now the Messiah, the long awaited one. And so verse 23, let's see what happens. After many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him. This is a theme we'll see with Paul's life. So in general, when Saul 1.0 becomes Saul 2.0, not everybody's super excited about this and what he's standing for. And the more he stepped forward and stepped out for the name of Jesus, the more he encountered this kind of response. It's kind of like every Tuesday for Saul is people are trying to kill him. And they're trying to wipe him out. They're trying to take him out, which is so ironic because he's the one standing giving approval to the first martyr in the Christian church named Stephen which we'll pick that up starting next week. But Stephen was executed, and Saul's there, 1.0, giving approval to Stephen's execution. Now it's shifted to Saul 2.0. He's encountered Jesus, standing up for Jesus. He's on the other side of the tracks. Now they're trying to take him out. And I'm sure there had to be quite an irony inside of Saul with that. Verse 24, but Saul learned of their plan. Day and night, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers asked him, or those followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. Verse 26, when he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. How many of you know this? Those most familiar with who you used to be sometimes have the most difficulty embracing who you will be in Jesus. Like those who are most kind of understanding, have the most history with you, who are very familiar with old ways, old self, old life, sometimes are struggling to embrace who you will be in the 2.0 realities. And that's what's going on with Saul, because he does get to Jerusalem, and most of the people are still focused on 1.0, and he's trying to lobby, look, I'm not who I used to be. I'm who Christ says I am now, just like that song we sang. It's so rooted in our identity, and it's, he's trying to proclaim who he used to be is not who he currently is and who he's becoming, and some are really struggling with it. Verse 27, but here's a key character in the story. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly 
in the name of Jesus. So Barnabas, he's one of the early disciples. So he's got a history with the people of Jesus. He's been in the family of Jesus. He's well-respected in the family of Jesus. And so Barnabas becomes a pathway for Saul to get connected to the new family of Jesus. Aren't Barnabas such a gift in the spiritual life? That's still how this works today. For most of us here, for most of you who've become integrated into any kind of spiritual family, most of us have the story that there's a Barnabas who's come along, who's been a part of the spiritual family, who becomes a bridge for you to enter into the community. That's Barnabas. He's here vouching, like he's standing up for Saul saying, you know, I understand your struggle. I understand you're kind of, you're intimidated by his reputation. Fair enough. But Barnabas stepped forward and said, let me tell you about the Saul 2.0 that I've gotten to know. He's genuinely encountered Jesus. He's a changed man. He's full of the Holy Spirit. Some things that he used to be a part, he's not, a, he's not that way anymore. Barnabas stands up and becomes a bridge into this new family of Jesus for Saul. And I couldn't help think about as a local church, what would it be like if we just had an army of Barnabases deployed in our body? We have so many here already. So many of you in your stories, that's your story, you're here. You could name your Barnabas right now. Someone who's a part of this local church who became a bridge for you to become integrated and get to know others and join the spiritual family. You might have as radical of a background as Saul, but the way you go from kind of being disconnected from a spiritual family to integrated into one is usually through the hand and the extended, like someone just extending their hand opening up their life, introducing themselves, getting to know a name, they become a Barnabas for you. And aren't Barnabas wonderful? Aren't they great gifts? And what it's like to be a Barnabas for someone else. And I just thought about as a church family, what if we all gathered on Sunday mornings with a Barnabas mindset, that when we're here, we're looking out for those who are still trying to find their relational way in. Wouldn't it be amazing if the reputation in our community became, hey, if you get around the Eagle Church community at all, they're just... There's just a whole, there's hundreds of Barnabases there whose name means son of encouragement. He was an encourager who's someone who's going to kind of stand in the gap and be a bridge for someone who's maybe a little more isolated, maybe more disconnected, someone who doesn't have some spiritual friendships, and they become a way like Barnabas was for Saul. I can't imagine how deep their relationship must have gone. As we'll see as the storyline goes, Saul and Barnabas stay linked up for many years doing a lot of ministry together, and I suspect it's rooted right here. Where Saul, there was a time when Saul, I'm not sure he would have ever been able to truly get integrated in to the family of Jesus without Barnabas here, because the people were really struggling with adopting what he's standing for. Now, verse 28, so Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem. That shows you how effective Barnabas' testimony was. They go from trying to kick him out. It's like, hey, you can stay with us. Probably, hey, Barnabas, you just like be his like bodyguard or something. You know, I'm sure Barnabas had to like be his buddy. <laughs> you stick close to him in case he goes back to 1.0 stuff. We want to know what's going on. So it says, he moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. Verse 29, he talked and debated with the Grecian Jews. So those are Greek-speaking Jews, different than the Hebraic Jews, Hebrew-speaking Jews. So different language, but same response to Saul. Look, but they tried to kill him. <laughs> that's, that's the theme, right? Whether they're speaking Greek or speaking Hebrew, they had the same response to Saul 2.0. Let's kill him. When the brothers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. 
So lest we think cancel culture is a new phenomena today, right? We cancel people digitally today. In Saul's day, first century, they canceled people physically and literally, right? They weren't feeling what he was standing for, so their response was cancel him, take him out, remove him. And so about a decade later or so, Paul reflects back on this little window of time here. And in your timeline of Saul's life, it's called the silent years. You'll see in your timeline here, this is what we're in today. I entitled today the desert years because it's the first three of a decade of what's known as Saul or Paul's silent years. Well, he reflects back on the silent years in Galatians 1, gives us a little insight into where he's going here. Galatians 1, verse 15, Paul says, But when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. That's, a one, that's like a one-sentence summary of Damascus Road. Because you remember, he struck blind, and then he, God calls Ananias to go to him, helps him see in his blindness, and then commissions him to be a light to the Gentiles. And remember, Gentile is a Bible word for the non-Jews. So if you're not Jewish of origin, you're a Gentile. And Saul 2.0, his primary Ephesians 2.10 purpose is going to be, he's going to be a light and a witness to the non-Jewish peoples. And he summarizes that. He went to eliminate Jesus' church, and now he's going to advocate for Jesus' church. He says, I did not consult any man, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was. But here's the key. But I went immediately into Arabia and later returned to Damascus. So here's a map. So geographically, here's where we're at. Remember, Damascus is in modern-day Syria, up there in the north. So he heads down 170 miles, stops off in Jerusalem for a bit, but eventually, as it says in Galatians, he ends up in the desert of Arabia. And you say, why would he go there? That's where Mount Sinai is. And if you're steeped as Saul was in his Jewish faith and traditions, he knows that people go to the wilderness to meet God. Sinai is the long, oh, that's the history where Moses had the encounter with God. So here's Saul taking his Damascus Road encounter, and he heads to the desert of Arabia. For most scholars believe three years he spends there. And so what I want to do with the remainder of our time this morning is I want to unpack these desert. The word in the New Testament is eremos. Say eremos. An eremos season is often translated in your Bible a wilderness season, a desert season, a place that's dry and solitary, a place of thorns and thirsts, a place where not a lot of stuff grows, obviously and outwardly, and a place where your wells run dry. That's what's called an eremos season, a wilderness season. And the history of God's people, it demonstrates People meet God in Eremos, in the wilderness. Like that's where Moses went to meet God in the burning bush. Where, you, where that was? In the wilderness. Where Jacob wrestled with God face to face. Guess where that was? The wilderness. Where did Israel wander with God for 40 years? Wilderness. Eremos. And where did the Holy Spirit lead Jesus right after his baptism? The Holy Spirit leads him into the wilderness for 40 days. And now Saul's journey is he goes from the road to Damascus, from this major turning point in his life, and now he finds himself 
retreating to Arabia into this solitary place, into this place of thirst, into this place known with thorns. And you say, what is God up to in that space? And I think the more you study in the scriptures, the more you find that when you walk with God, the question isn't whether you're going to end up in the wilderness. The question is when you're going to get there and how long you're going to stay. It's not a question of if. It's just a matter of when and how. And so this is what we're going to spend the remainder of our time this morning on. Because a lot of writers, a lot of people in the past, not a lot of commentary is given on this section of Paul or Saul's life. Usually people just jump right to his missionary journeys. But I think this is a really significant part of who Saul 2.0 is becoming, which will eventually be on display as the Apostle Paul. You got men like Augustine, you got Teresa of Avila, Ignatius, Wesley, and more currently, Pete Scazzaro took a lot of those guys' writings. He compiled kind of this diagram. I modified it a bit. I kind of tweaked a lot of these guys and made it what I thought might be most accessible to us today. And here's the diagram I put in your notes. I'm calling it the stages or seasons of a spiritual life. So take a look at this up on the screen, and I want you to just kind of see and just kind of Go with me here, starting at stage one at the top, and just kind of imagine where you're at in this journey, and then just kind of picture where Saul's at, because I think it gives us some windows and insight for us today. So everybody's spiritual life has a starting point, right? Stage one is you can't, you can't begin a walk with Jesus without getting into the race. In the language of the Bible, the starting point is conversion. It's when you're born again. It's when you have a spiritual turning point. For some, it was very young in your life. For others, it's a little bit later on. Everybody's journey is their own journey, but everybody has a starting point. That's stage one. It's your Damascus road at whatever level you want to call that. That's for Saul, right? His starting point was Acts 9, Damascus road, struck blind in order to see. And then stage one moves into, once you come to know Christ as your Savior, you move into this place of learning. In a theological term, is called discipleship. A disciple is simply a learner. And you begin to apply yourself to understand, okay, who God is and what God is expecting of my life and what does it mean to live my everyday life with him? This is, this is all discipleship stuff. How do you begin to integrate Jesus into your everyday routines? And that's stage two. That's when it's just a big, it's a part of learning. It's you're asking questions. You might be implementing what's called spiritual disciplines in your life for the first time. You might begin to read the Bible regularly for the first time. You might begin to practice something like prayer, private prayer or corporate. You might pray with some other believers. You might begin fasting. You might begin serving. You might begin practicing corporate worship or confession. This is all in this stage too. When you go from this conversion, this turning point, then you begin to enter and walk in the ways of Jesus. That's stage two. And then you move into stage three. It's the doing part. The doing part is when you get active with your faith. It's when you begin to discover your spiritual gifts. It's what Ted and Julia are talking about in Divine Design. Um, they do it on Sunday mornings at 8.30, so you can jump in there still. They've got a few more weeks left in the class. A good next step for some of you to discover what has God entrusted you with and how has he put you together and the personality and the gifts and the skills and the experiences. And how does that point you to what he wants you to do in your Ephesians 2.10 purpose in this world. At stage three, you get active. You start doing some stuff. And we've got an army of people around here that mainly Jesus' church is carried out on the backs of volunteers, of all of us who are followers of Christ, kind of understanding our role and deploying our gifts to serve his mission in this world. That's how Jesus' work goes forward. Stage three, it's an active 
faith. And then somewhere in the journey from stage three to four is this wilderness space, right? After you have this conversion and you start learning and growing and you get active with your faith, usually you find yourself in an Eremos season, in your own desert of Arabia. It's tied closely to stage four. Stage four is what I'm calling the journey inward. And we're going to unpack this more this morning. And so then that eventually stage four yields into stage five. There is this transition back to active service, but it's coming from a different place on the other side of the wilderness. That's what I want you to see today. And I think the explanation for Saul 2.0, who eventually becomes the Apostle Paul, I think the wilderness hit to some deep places in his heart. This decade of silent years was so formative that the Apostle Paul could sustain what we're going to be studying and reading about over this next year because journey five is this journey outward. You eventually re-engage in much of the same kinds of work you were doing before, but you do it from a different and a more centered place. I put this quote in your notes. Listen to how Scazzaro says it. The difference is, speaking about on the backside of the wilderness and coming into active service again, he says, the difference is that now we get out of, we give out of a new grounded center of ourselves in God. We have rediscovered God's profound, deep, accepting love for us. A deep inner stillness now begins to characterize our work for God. That's some of the fruit you see on the backside of an Aramos season. And then eventually you move into stage six, which I'm calling surrendered to love. It's just God's continual forming and shaping work that's marked for mostly by love, where we're wholeheartedly surrendered to him, to his will and purposes for our lives. So big picture wise, I, kind of, I want to give you that diagram for you just to kind of keep before you, and we're going to use this to kind of keep before Saul's life to kind of track and map out where he's at on this journey. And specifically today, he's in the wilderness. He went fairly quickly from stage one, two, and three in his. He went fair, God took him quickly from this conversion experience, and he sent him three plus years into a place of solitary kind of an isolation, a time of searching, a time of thirsting in the desert. It's what St. John of the Cross, he was a spiritual leader in Spain in the 1500s, probably one of the most well-written books on wilderness experiences is his writing. It's not the easiest read, but it's super helpful. St. John wrote a book called The Dark Night of the Soul. It was his attempt to put words and language and understanding to the work of Jesus in the Eremos seasons that we all encounter in our walk with God. He called it the dark night of loving fire. That's what St. John of the Cross called it. And he said that specifically in his book, he unpacks, like he calls them spiritual imperfections that really only the wilderness can get at. And perhaps that's where some of you find yourself this morning. It's like you find yourself in your own personal wilderness time, your own desert. You know, one of the marks of a desert season is the, the ways you were going about life and your relationship with God, they don't work quite like they used to. God feels more distant or absent than he's felt before. Maybe some of the spiritual disciplines that seem to be so formative in your earlier years, they just, you just sense something shifted and you're confused and there's this kind of mystery on the inside, like what is going on? 
The answers that used to be there, they aren't there anymore. That's a good indicator that you're probably in the early stages of an Aramos season, what St. John of the Cross calls a dark night of loving fire. It's not something that God sends to discipline us. It's something he sends to form us and shape us and develop us, mature us and grow us. And so I put in your notes what St. John of the Cross outlined are seven spiritual imperfections that he said, that's what the Eremos really is getting at. And so let me just hit these quickly, and then I'll try to draw this together with some application to our lives. So the first thing he says, what goes on in, in the Eremos is God goes after this issue of pride that we all struggle with, right? Where we have this tendency to condemn others and become impatient with everyone else's faults. And we become very selective about who can teach us. That issue of kind of pride and spiritual pride. And can you imagine Saul, like Saul 1.0? It would have been tough to, be a, to teach Saul 1.0 anything. Because he was a teacher of teachers. We'll see in the months ahead. His resume was loaded. He had multiple PhDs in religion. For him to be in the posture of receiving teaching from someone else, the Aramos has got to get at specifically spiritual pride at its core, to have a humility to say, you know what, maybe I'm not seeing as clearly as I thought I once did. That's what the wilderness addresses. And then avarice, which is known as greed, it's another layer that the desert addresses. When enough is never enough and you're constantly discontent, or luxury, where we take more pleasure in the blessings of God than God himself, it's the aramos that deals with that. Or wrath, there's layers of wrath in our heart where we're easily irritated, where we lack gentleness, where we have little patience to wait on God. That gets worked out in the wilderness. Spiritual gluttony, it's another key one. The spiritual gluttony resists the call to die to self. You're struggling with spiritual gluttony when you respond like testy children when they don't get their way. So when you don't get your way with God and you're super testy and you're super reactive, it's spiritual gluttony. And it's to the eremos that God takes you. And then spiritual envy. This is the comparison trap. Where you always got your eyes on everyone else's sheet of paper. You know where you, God trains you to kind of keep your eyes on your own sheet of paper? The eremos. It's where you begin to say, you know, if I can't rejoice in the success of others around me, it's to the desert God wants to deal. And then lastly, sloth. He talks about laziness at the center. A shrinking back from anything hard. When you're mastered by good feelings, this is all the kind of stuff that God's getting at in the desert. So here's his summary. St. John of the Cross says it this way. God is purging the soul, emptying it, or consuming in it, even as fire consumes the moldiness and the rust of metal. All the affections and imperfect habits which it has contracted its whole life. These are deeply rooted in the substance of of the soul. So this is what God is up to in the three years in the desert of Arabia. And I don't think that's just for Saul of Tarsus. I think that's also for us today. Can you picture for Saul, like God's coming after this man's heart to purge it of some things that the 1.0 life had developed so deeply in him. He wants to form and shape and develop some things in Saul because he sees what he's going to do with his life and you could picture, they think Saul was probably in his early 30s when he had his Damascus Road encounter. So he had 30 years of developing some habits and practices in the 1.0 arena. And it's to the Aramos where the 1.0 kind of begins to 
fade away a little more and the 2.0 gets forged and gets brought to the forefront and developed. It's right there. It's in those desert and wilderness times because what Paul's going to learn is Paul can't do Jesus' work Saul's way. Paul's got to do Jesus' work Jesus' way. And that, get, that, that layer is not going to get addressed if he just goes from Damascus Road to the first missionary journey. Like if he just goes in and starts doing his mission work, it's not going to get addressed in there. He's got to go from Damascus Road and he's got to go to Arabia. He's got to go into some silent years because some things have to get shifted around inside of him. All right, we'll come up for air. I know that was a lot to take in in one whole section. Take a breath, and we're going to draw this together and kind of be a bridge into our lives today. And I wrote down just three things from this journey into our Ramos seasons. Like, what are markers? Because one of the questions that come is, okay, Eric, it's helpful to understand if you land yourself there. Like, okay, the question isn't whether you're going to land there when you get there. Well, how long are you going to stay? The answer is probably longer than you want. That's generally my experience, and it seems to be the experience of the people of God. That generally, it's not a wilderness you choose, it's usually chosen for you. And in our lives, there's all kinds of triggers into the wilderness. Some of you, your journey is with your physical body. Like your physical body is right now just an ongoing Aramos season of your life. You find yourself in a perpetual desert and wilderness because your physical body is breaking down, and that's some of the realities, and that God is there to meet you in that space. For others of you, it's a relational wilderness. You've got some things unraveling at home, marriage and family front. Others of you, it's a career situation, financial situation, ministry situation. There can be all kinds of circumstantial triggers that God will use to kind of basically say, welcome in to your Aramos season. And then the journey is, well, where is God? Like, how is God going to meet me in there? Primarily, it's not about taking the wilderness to discipline. Though sometimes, if we're honest, it's self-inflicted wilderness. Sometimes we make some pretty poor decisions. We're pretty foolish with some things, and there's self-inflicted wilderness. But the primary example in Scripture is not self-inflicted, but more God-led, God-ordained. For Jesus, he's baptized in Matthew 3. The opening line in Matthew 4 says, the Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness. I'm like, dang, if that was true for the Son of God, how much more for us? Little parenthesis for those of you who were recently baptized, probably shouldn't be any surprise for you that the next stage of your journey, it might have some Aramos type qualities. That if that was Jesus' journey, a good chance for you that he might be taking you into a space to deal with some of these seven layers that St. John called spiritual imperfections. And it's into the desert that he takes you. So then the question comes, well, how do you know you're kind of coming out? What are some characteristics of someone who's come through from stage three to four to five? Like when you're coming through from four into five, what, how do you know when there's journey inward to journey outward? And these are where we'll wrap things today. I wrote down three things. I think the first marker for someone on the backside of an Aramos season is that brokenness replaces judgmentalism. So Karl Barth was a theologian many years ago. He said this. I put this quote in your notes. The root and origin of sin is the arrogance in which man wants to be his own and his neighbor's judge. I'm sure we don't struggle with that today, but just imagine if we might be uh, struggling a bit with this today. 
So you, do you see there's this propensity, like in my own journey, when I look at, I'm so quick to like be judgmental. I'm so quick to condemn and categorize others who don't align and agree with how I think something should be. Like, where does that get worked out of my heart? It's in the wilderness where that kind of quick to judge, quick to categorize, quick to condemn gets molded into a humility of brokenness to recognize, you know, there's a common thread amongst us as humans. We're all human beings, and we all have a shared layer of brokenness. And to have greater empathy, understanding, and compassion for someone who just simply sees something differently than you do. And I think it's the, the wilderness that helps us shift that layer of judgmentalism and brokenness. The second one I put is a deeper ability to wait on God. So there's this striving and grasping and driving to make something happen that usually we don't have to work at. We come at that pretty naturally in our fallenness. We want to get things moving. We want to make something happen for God, especially if you've had a profound encounter with Jesus. You want to do something significant for God. And that's not coming from a bad place, but usually that means we run ahead of God and we're just kind of struggling with trying to make it happen in our own wisdom and strength. Psalm 27, 14 says, wait for the Lord, be strong, take heart, and wait for the Lord. You know, it's the wilderness where you really learn to wait on God, where you kind of relinquish the pull to run ahead of God, where you surrender your timeline to His. If you're struggling with the timeline negotiation deal with God, pretty good chance you're still in some wilderness ahead or still in the throes of it. Because you, on the backside of a wilderness, you've learned like what Isaiah 55 says, my plans are not your plans, my ways are not your ways. Like God's ways are, it says, as high as, high as the heavens are above the earth. And they said, the scientists say about 15.5 billion light years is how they've traced the farthest edge of the universe. So I took that and translated it myself. God's ways are 15.5 billion light years beyond my ways. It's the wilderness where you really internalize that deeply. Because in your younger years, as you're getting started in your faith, you're pretty convinced that you know exactly what God wants most of the time. And you're convinced you know the timeline that he wants it in most of the time. Until you live a little bit of life with God and you realize, uh, the wilderness is where you learn to slow down to catch up with God. One writer wrote a book called The Three Mile an Hour God. I thought when I read the title, I don't have any idea of the substance of the book. The title is Gold three-mile-an-hour God. It's the pace with which humans walk. It says you have to learn to pace your life, to slow down, to catch up with God. It's Abraham and Sarah, right? They waited on God 25 years before Isaac was born, Genesis 12 to 21. Moses waits 40 years in the desert from Exodus 2 before he encounters the burning bush. Did you know King David he waited 13 years from his anointing as king in 1 Samuel 16 to occupying the throne in that whole journey. That was a 13-year journey. And then Hannah, in the Old Testament, Hannah longed to be a mom. She wanted to have a child, and she had to wait and wait for the Lord to take her womb from barrenness to fruitfulness in 1 Samuel 1. Or how about Jesus himself? Jesus waited 30 years being a carpenter's son, making footstools and wood benches. For 30 years before he stepped into the public role of the Messiah, and it only lasted three years. So a long journey for Jesus. So the general pattern with God is he's going to deliver on his promises. He is going to deliver, but probably 
more slowly than we prefer, which is why the repeated biblical exhortation to wait, wait, and wait for the Lord. And it's the wilderness where that gets developed in us. So the first is this movement from judgmentalism into a a space of brokenness and empathy. The second movement is instead of the propensity to run ahead of God and to, you know, think you're just going to do all this great stuff for God and you're going to fix everything in Jesus' name, that there's this humility that comes from learning how to wait on the Lord and to discern what He's doing and to relinquish the pull to run ahead. And then thirdly and lastly, there's this greater detachment, okay? There's this work of detachment that the wilderness moves. Thomas Merton said it this way, the critical issue on the journey with God is not, am I happy, but am I free? Am I growing in the freedom God gave me? See, we're to to detach from certain behaviors and habits and patterns, especially from our 1.0 life. And when you look at Saul, he had probably a pretty lengthy list of things he had to learn how to detach from. And then he moved from that to beginning to embrace what it means to be in this new family of Jesus and live into his new identity. Become more of who you already are was kind of the journey. Coming to know Christ, he's changed some things instantaneously in Acts 9. And over the several months ahead, we're going to look at how Saul is on this journey of ever-changing. Changed and changing. He's learning how to detach from some things that he's need to release and relinquish. It's finding this space that the wilderness trains in us to enjoy this beautiful world God's made and all the gifts that he's given us to get about and just to relish in his wonderful creation and his goodness and whatever he pours out on your life. To do that, but not become attached to it. And so moms and grandmas on Mother's Day, I can't think, this is a good exhortation when it comes to children and grandchildren. They're a wonderful gift from the Lord. They should be enjoyed and treasured and to relish in God's goodness in that. But here's the tension. It's usually in the desert where we're able to kind of release what the tendency is, is we we put our kids at the center and we clutch and we grasp and we cling and we try to extract our identity and value and worth. We try to make them the center of everything and we kind of our own value and worth is tied to our kids. All that stuff, we get too attached. And it's to the Aramos moms and grandmas that he takes us to rightly order the loves in our heart, to be able to receive. St. John said that Those who experience the greatest peace and the deepest joy in life are those who learn the gift of detachment from the things of this world. And it's not just kids for moms. It could be career. It could be money. It could be our physical body and appearance. We just get too attached to the things of this world. It could be ministry stuff. We just get too attached. And then we tether our identity and value to that attachment. And so it's to the Aramos where God wants to work some of that detaching work. All right, worship team, come on back up. Thanks for hanging in there with me. If you've been counting lights for the last several minutes, you can come back now. You can come back from counting your lights. But let me just say this in closing. When you step back and you kind of examine the stages in your own spiritual journey, and I have to believe, based on the story God's writing in all of our lives, there's no lack of a Ramos experiences happening in our own body right now. And so if you find yourself in a space where maybe, hopefully this morning has put some new language to you 
on where you're at and perhaps why you're there. And then maybe today you can begin to embrace and surrender to this work. And whether it's in some of the layers of the seven imperfections that St. John or maybe some of these characteristics that I just described at the end, but that we just kind of adopt this place of surrender and say, Jesus, have your way in this journey from 1.0 to 2.0 and and what he's going to do into the next chapters. And this morning will be really central for us understanding what in the world God's doing with the Apostle Paul and the explanation. Say, what happened to that guy? Well, Jesus happened to that guy and the wilderness happened to that guy. And I suspect that's not just for Saul. The explanation probably in origin. What happened to what happened to that guy? What happened to that gal? Jesus happened to them, and no doubt the wilderness. Unless we think the wilderness is one and done, just keep living. God has a way of kind of taking you around for another lap or two. And if you wonder about that, just ask those in the room who lived a little more life. They'll explain it's usually wildernesses, and it's out of his deep love for our hearts. He wants that, that deep work of loving fire to work another layer, so he'll take us in out of love for that. All right, let's pray together. Jesus, thanks so much for this journey with Saul. Thanks for all the ways you're going to give us perspective and insight, whether it's a mom, whether it's a dad, whether it's someone dealing with work and health and finance and just everyday life stuff. I just pray that you would give us your eyes to see and give us a heart to surrender and say yes and amen to the work you want to do. Whether we're deep, deep into a personal Ramos or we're just on the front edge of one or just coming out of one, we simply say, have your way. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.